0: So glad that you're here. We're launching a new series today, and we're going to look at the book of Isaiah. And uh, the the punchline of the scripture we're going to look at says, "You will be called the restorers of streets to dwell in. Uh, You're going to be the builders of beautiful neighborhoods. You're going to be the creators of a home where people feel safe and loved and cherished and whole." And that's the punchline. But in order to get there, we're going to start with some other stuff, which is kind of interesting. Some of it is not great news, but it is good news for us if we apply it to our lives. And so the book of Isaiah is an interesting one. If you want to launch your own personal reading plan. Uh, We're going to be in this for five weeks, so you've got about two chapters a day to do in Isaiah if you want to do that over the next five weeks. Um, It's 66 chapters. It's one of the biggest books in the Bible, but more than that, it's really weighty theologically. This book has a lot going on, and it's kind of hard to read because it bounces around a lot between timelines, there's a part of it is in one era and part of it is 150 years later and because it's hard to know who the voices are is this a prophet, is this God is it the people protesting or complaining or what's going on and knowing what's going on at any given time is God speaking to his enemy right now is he speaking to his people can be hard to figure out in Isaiah so you can be tempted to put it on the shelf somebody stopped me after the last service and said yep I've just pretty much put it on the shelf because I don't get it But I want us to look at one specific part of it. And first, let's look at the book. How did we get it? What does it mean? Because that will help you as you read through it. Isaiah was a prophet To the kingdom of Israel, yes, the whole kingdom, but primarily the southern kingdom. Uh, After King David and King Solomon, the kingdom split in two, the kingdom of Israel did. It it would be like if our southern states seceded and it was now the divided states of America and there was the southern states and there were northern states. And so that's what happens in the kingdom. We have a little map of the kingdom of Israel. And so Isaiah prophesies to both of the kingdoms, but primarily the southern kingdom of Judah. Now in the in the existence of the northern kingdom of Israel whose capital was Samaria There were zero good kings, not a single one. They had all bad kings from beginning to end until they finally fall to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah has eight good kings in their history. And Josiah prophesied, I mean Josiah, that's my son, but also one of the good kings. Um, (laughs) All my Bible people are just coming together because I'm so fun at parties, can you tell? (laughs) Uh, So... (laughs) So Isaiah prophesies through the reign of four different kings: King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. And he his his career spans so many changes politically, uh, philosophically, spiritually. Isaiah watches a lot of kingdoms rise and fall. And right in the middle of his career, which would be right in that he 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 was at work between 740 and 700-ish B.C. And right in the middle, in 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians. And Isaiah, though he's prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, starts to say, this is how your life is going to go too. This is coming your way too. You will be conquered if you don't change your ways. He sees something coming in the people of Babylon, and he's like, they look small and insignificant now, but they're gonna have you for lunch if you don't change the way you do business. And so sure enough... Isaiah 1 through 39, we see Isaiah prophesying passionately that this is gonna happen, this could happen, this could happen, be careful, change your ways. And then when you turn the page to chapter 40, suddenly we're 150 years in the future. Now the kingdom of Judah has already been conquered by Babylon and they are ready to go out. They're ready to march out of their exile. And so some people, because of this, because the first 39 chapters are pre-Babylonian exile, and the next chapters, 40 through 66, have this 150-year jump, they also have a really distinct jump in style. Like all of one through 39 is prose, and all of 40 through 66 is poetry. And so there's there's a very distinct change. And so biblical scholars hotly debate who actually wrote Isaiah. Spoiler, biblical scholars hotly debate everything. Everything. I find it fascinating. Not everyone does. But they there are two main theories. One is that Isaiah wrote 1 through 39 directly. And then afterwards, at chapter 40, he, d- he died because the, the exile happened 150 years after his death. So he dies. And his disciples, who he mentions three different times in the first part of the book took on his work, they said this is what he was warning about, this is what he was seeing, and they also prophetically write their way through the exile, and their work becomes attributed to Isaiah. The other theory is that Isaiah was just prophetically transported 150 years into the future and he wrote what he saw and felt while he was transported there. So you can pick your own theory, I don't care which one you pick. What we do know, and most scholars agree, and when I say most scholars agree, you should take that to the bank because it doesn't happen that often. Most scholars agree that Isaiah is sourced. The whole book is sourced in the work and the ministry and the life and the teaching of Isaiah. We don't know a lot about him as a person. We just know that he carried significant spiritual weight. There was a lot of theology in this book that is pointing toward a kingdom coming, pointing toward someone is coming to save you. You're not going to be in charge of fixing this all yourself. Someone loves you. Someone's coming. I love one, of truly one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is Isaiah 9, where he says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government will be on his shoulder. Can anybody say, thank God, the government is on his shoulder, not even shoulders. I looked it up. Just one. He's fine. <laughs> so he prophesies the coming of a baby to people who would not see the coming of a baby. So the people that he's speaking to in Isaiah 9, he's not speaking about. They're not the people that are going to see the baby. Who are those people? Hi, it's us. We're the ones from the other side of the timeline. Isaiah sees Jesus coming from one side of the timeline, and we can look in the rear view and see that he has come, and his work on earth, and how it is progressing, and how it has transformed our lives, and how it changes culture, and how it impacts all the things that impact us. And so... Um, it is a really significant book. Isaiah is quoted or alluded to in the Gospels 21 times, uh, 25 times in Paul's letters, 6 times in First Peter, 5 times in Acts, 4 times in Revelation, and once in Hebrews. These are good reviews. This is a good Yelp situation for Isaiah. The people we respect and revere, including Jesus, quote Isaiah as being a worthy and reliable narrator of the work of God in history. So we can count on this. We can count on this work and the book being true, not always easy to understand, but always significant for our life and development. In Luke 4, Jesus launches his own ministry by going into the temple and unrolling a scroll <clears throat> and reading out of Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he's anointed me. And then, when he's done, he rolls up the scroll and he says, I am the fulfillment of the words that Isaiah prophesied eight centuries earlier. This is beautiful. So, we know that even Jesus' endorsement is on the book of Isaiah. It has profound and enormous theological implications for us. And for the next five weeks, we're going to camp out in just one chapter of this big, beautiful book. It's Isaiah 58. And it centers a lot around fasting. It, it, it opens up by asking, is this the fast that I've chosen? It's an intriguing question. I want you to put a pin in for a minute. But I, I want to open it up like a treasure box. Like the, the, Isaiah 58 is a treasure. Isaiah is a treasure. The Bible is a treasure. But when we start to open it up, <clears throat> we'll find gifts inside the gift. We'll find there are words and lines and principles and things that really have today implications for our lives. So we're gonna tackle the first five verses today and I'm super excited about it. It starts like this. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Now that doesn't sound like great news, does it? Um, He says, raise your voice like a trumpet. If anyone has had a kid in seventh grade band learn to play the trumpet, you know it cannot be ignored. It cannot be ignored in your home. We're just gonna have a quiet dinner while Justin learns to play the trumpet. It's gonna be great. There's no way to play it quietly. And in all of Israel's history, the trumpet is a way to gather the people around a certain principle at a certain point in time. This is how they bring them together. They don't have a bat signal, they don't have the internet, they don't have a way to call everyone together. So the trumpet does the trick. And in this this verse, the prophet says, raise your voice like that. This is big. What's about to come is very important. And so he wants to highlight it before he even says it. And then we want to ask ourselves, who is he talking to? Because sometimes the prophet talks to the enemy. Sometimes the prophet talks to God. Sometimes he talks. In this scripture, it tells us right inside the scripture, declare to my people, Their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. So Isaiah is prophesying here to us, to the people of God. He's not talking to their enemies. He's talking to people who have said, I'm going to sign my name on the dotted line. I want to follow God. I want to be called by the name Yahweh. And so this is who he's talking to. And he says, I'm going to tell you about your sins. And here is the sin he talks about. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. I mean, this doesn't seem like a sin. This seems like a good idea, right? It's almost like saying, I want to declare to you your sins. You get up every day and have devotions. How dare you? But then he says, they do this as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. So apparently, there's something beyond spiritual practice. There's also the actual spiritual life. There's something that they're missing. They're doing some things that are not wrong, but they're doing them in a wrong way. Day after day, it says, they seek him. And they're acting like they haven't forsaken God's commands. And then he says, they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Again, he uses this word, they seem eager. They seem eager. They appear eager. This word eager in the Hebrew is the word delight. It seems like they're delighting in God, but apparently their their service and their devotion and their, their practice is rooted in something else entirely. Somehow their delight has turned into something else. He says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? And why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So here we arrive at the heart of the issue. In this scripture, the heart of the issue is actually exactly that. It's an issue of the heart. And the issue of the heart is that we're doing something, but we're not, you're not blessing it. You're not performing as expected. And we're super humble. Look at us. We're so humble. <laughs> if you ever need to be noticed, that might be a sign that the humility is not on the top of your gifts list. Um, If we need someone to notice it. And they reveal here that that what should be sourced in delight is rooted in something else entirely. They're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And what's happened here is that they've mixed in a little Canaanite religion, a little Canaanite worship with the worship of Yahweh. Canaanite Religion is little g gods, lots and lots and lots of them, a god for every issue, a god for the rain, a god to keep the locusts away, a god for fertility, a god to make the sun shine, and all of those gods had different requirements for how you needed to jump through their hoops in order to pressure them into doing what you needed them to do, and here we see The people who have been invited into this loving, delightful relationship with a magnificent creator, they've been lovingly invited and welcomed in, and here we see they are treating him like a little G God. They're treating him like someone they need to pressure in order to get their way by using things like fasting and prayer and a show of humility. They need him for prosperity. They need him for protection. They need him for a bunch of stuff. But this isn't sourced in relationship. The essence of the Hebrew religion is not to twist God's arm to get him to perform. It's to worship him out of a heart of delight. It says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists I love this language. You strike each other with wicked fists. I took a long time in my office when I studied this just asking, what are the wicked fists of our day? Because I don't, I, I've seen one fight break out in my life. It was on an airplane, which is particularly horrifying because you're trapped in there. They threw them off the plane. We hadn't taken off yet. It was fine, they were fine. <laughs> but they did throw him off the plane uh, because they were fighting and they were striking each other with wicked fists but I think there are lots of ways to strike each other. I think we strike each other from our keyboards, we strike each other with our words, we strike each other with our actions and our attitudes. And they are not treating people who are made in the image of God the way God would treat them. And it shows that they have entered the land of duty. They are they are fasting out of duty. They are praying out of responsibility because they want God to bless them. But they are not treating the people that God also loves in the way that God would treat them. And it shows that they have moved from, from delight... To duty, And whenever we move from delight in God's ways to duty to follow him so that he doesn't make us, he doesn't get mad at us, we have entered the wild, terrible, ugly land called dead religion. That's where we land. When we start operating out of duty rather than delight, dead religion is filled with rule books and rule enforcers, hall monitors who keep everybody in the lines and get to decide who's out. Dead religion replaces the the beautiful mystery of falling in love with God with a recipe for not making him mad. Dead religion produces a, a transactional relationship with God. If I, then you. If I do it a certain way, then you will bless me a certain way. Transactional relationships are great for banks and insurance companies. You know, they're great. But have you ever once fallen in love with your ATM? No, it's transactional. I put the card in, it gives me my money back. I pay my insurance claims, they pay my settlements when we crash our car. It's transactional. And those kinds of relationships are safe, but they're the product of a fallen world where we have to hold everyone to their word. Transactional relationships, at best, are safe. At worst, they are soul-crushing. I have seen a lot of marriages in my day. And I have some that I just very much admire. I think they're just so wonderful. It's so wonderful to watch a couple who's truly in love. But I have never said I love watching that marriage because they stick to their vows. They made the vows, they made the promises, they've got it all in triplicate, they signed the license, and darn it, they do it. They stick to it. That's not cool, that's just transactional. And so the relationships that are birthed from delight, that's a different thing. Those are the friendships I love to watch. Those are the marriages I love to watch. That's the parent-child relationships I love to watch. The ones where we truly delight in each other as a reflection of the image of God. And how is this manifesting for Israel? First of all, it says, you do as you please. This is a problem. You do as you please. You put your desires first. You say, You're humble. You say you're fasting. You're giving up a meal, but you still have your desires in first position. Dead religion always puts self at the center. And then it says you exploit your workers. Dead religion always puts profit and power over people. While they're giving something up and fasting, they're also working really hard to get something more for themselves. They're after power, possessions, and they're willing to give up a meal or two to get it. Uh, dead religion always says my power first. And then it says your fasting ends with quarreling and strife, striking each other with those wicked fists. This is just such a violent description of how we interact with one another. First, he talks about you exploit your workers, those who need you. But then he says, you, you hurt each other. you, here in God's house, here with God's people, you're hurting each other. And I'm not going to listen to you. And your voice won't be heard if you don't treat people the way I treat them. There's, a, there's this idea because dead religion says my opinions first. My possessions first. My power first. My desires first. And my opinions first. And the way of a delightful relationship says God's desires first, God's power first, God's opinions first. I put them all in first position. The prophet is unwavering in conveying how God feels about this kind of religion. He says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You can't. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? I love how the prophet turns this back into questions. He says, Is this what you think God wants? Is this what you think will work? Is this what you think relationship looks like? Is this what you call acceptable? that you will just do the motions, that you will check the box and never let it impact your actual life. If you don't realize that God is not just watching your fast to make sure you've done it, but he is also watching your relationships, then you've missed him. I, w- I went to Winco a couple of weeks. I, I don't know why Winco shows up so much in my illustrations. I think it is a significant discipleship tool in my life. <laughs> I went to Inca last year and it was in early in the morning and my husband and I have been helping care for his mom who was dying and it was a very long sleepless night. And I decided to get there before the crowd and go early in the morning and it was pouring buckets. I am so sorry to prophesy to you what is in your future. But it was pouring <laughs> buckets and I just I parked and I ran in and I did my shopping and I forgot my box, my little cute Winko box thing, my grocery bag thing. And so I grabbed one on my way in and then I checked out and on my way out, I see the price tag is on it. She didn't ring it up and it was like five bucks and I'm taking it out to my car and I'm like, ugh, you know, that the little, maybe you don't, maybe you're just so much better than me, but there's this war inside of me. Like I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back through the rain. I don't want to push this dumb cart back. I'm just going to leave it in the parking lot, free range. I (laughs) don't want to do it. And I had this thought, if Cliff were with me, I would take it back. Because Cliff would know. And he wouldn't insist. He's a better man. Um, And then I realized, Jesus is watching me. And if I don't take this back, I don't have faith in him. I can't say I have faith in the God who I asked to show up and see me in my darkest moment, but I don't want him to see me in the Winko parking lot. It's not about the five bucks. It's not about the rain. It's not about the time. It's not about any of that. It's that I have chosen that I will delight in being seen and known and loved by you. And so taking the dumb box back and paying for it is gonna be an act of faith. And without faith, It is impossible to please him. So this understanding that he is watching not just how we show up here, not just how we are in our prayer time, our worship time, our quiet time is a big deal. But even bigger than that is understanding that he already delights in us. See he asks us to delight in him. It's all through the Bible. Psalm 112, 1 says blessed are those who fear the Lord and find great delight in their commands. Psalm 19 135 165 says great peace have those who love their love your law and nothing can make them stumble. This delight in his law changes the way we live out our life. It's so beautiful. And Psalm 37, you probably have a cross stitched on a pillow somewhere. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Actually, if you want to unpack that scripture in the Hebrew, you're going to find that it actually means, and I'm sorry if I'm bursting bubbles right now, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of his heart, actually, is what that means. But it's good. that's good news. Promise. Um, these are not the commands of a distant God who is disgusted with his creation. They aren't. This isn't like when you pay and you save your money and you take your kids to Disneyland and you're super excited about it, or maybe you're only marginally excited about it, and you take them and they spend all their time on their cell phones. They're just bored. They're eye-rolly. They don't like the rise. They don't like the thing. And if you would say to them, delight in this. I insist, in fact, I command, I am your mother, and I command that you enjoy Disneyland because it is the happiest place on earth. (laughs) I command it. That is not what is happening here. That is not God saying, I just insist that you delight in me or I'm going to turn away from you. It's not. Actually, listen to this, Psalm 147, 11. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love Psalm 149.4, for the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you over you with singing God is not a reluctant rescuer of you he is not resistant to save you he is already delighting in you he already sees you and knows you he knows you're a mess he knows you are you need to be seen to feel humble he knows all those things and he still delights in you he goes first he first cares about you and we only reflect that love We only are a little small mirror back to him of the way he already delights in us. He delights to love us. And we're created to love him back the same way. And the way God sees their dead religion here is not because they're ignoring spiritual disciplines. But because they're not loving who he loves. Because they're not loving the people who bear his image. When we live in a way that puts our desires, our power, our possessions, and our opinions in first position, we have lost our sense of delight in abandoning those things in order to receive his desires. If my desires are in first position, then I have actively resisted the government of God in my life. If my heart is filled with all the things I need and my need to control the situation and control you, control what you believe, what you think, how you act, how you drive, all the things, that's just a little note to myself. Um, If that's what's in my heart, I am absolutely not delighting in the way of God. I'm not. Fasting is not a device used to handcuff God to our own agenda. Fasting is the opposite it is built for emptying us out of our agenda so we can fully lean into the beauty and mystery of discovering his. And moving further into the desires, the power and the opinions of God will inevitably move us toward those created in his image and not away from them. It will move us toward mercy, toward healing, toward compassion, toward grace. As we allow the desires of God to take up first position in our lives, we're gonna to start to see the world around us in a whole new way. As we move further into this passage in the weeks ahead, we'll discover that fasting goes hand in hand with freedom. Fasting reveals what's handcuffing us. All these little places where I am chained to weird stuff, I am chained to my own worries, I'm chained to my own panic, my own own pain, my own loss, my own sorrow, my own insecurity. Fasting unties cords and loosens ropes and breaks yokes of bondage. The ones that are around us and the ones we put on other people. Fasting is meant for freedom. In fact, in Matthew 17, an anxious dad brings his son to Jesus. Worship team, you can come back. An anxious dad brings his son to Jesus and he says, my son is is demon possessed and he is hurting himself. He's going to kill himself. He needs help. And I've tried everything and I can't get this kid free. And he brings him to the disciples and the disciples also can't do anything about it. They try and nothing happens. And then Jesus sets him free. And the disciples say, what happened here? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. So do you think it's the prayer and fasting of the boy who was healed that matters? Not in this case, In this case, it's the prayer and fasting of Jesus. And I don't know that Jesus was fasting in this moment. There was something about the work that he had done in the secret place, the way that he had delighted in God, the way he had come to him, the way he had emptied himself out of his agenda, Philippians 2, the way he had said, not my will, but your will, that made room in his life for freedom working power for somebody else. Fasting did not handcuff God to the agenda of Jesus. Fasting released the agenda of God into the world. Doesn't that kind of life sound appealing, intriguing, amazing? If we could live in this place where there is some kind of living water running through us for the world, that we're moving into increasing levels of freedom and hope and joy that we start to see the yoke of bondage broken. This is the promise of Isaiah 58. And I am not gonna kid you, it is not simple. It's simple, it's not easy. It requires that I say, look at me in the most difficult kind of way. Look at my heart, turn your spotlight here Look at the places that are holding me back and keeping me bound. Look at the places where I am trying to control other people or I am exploiting or I am striking with wicked fists or wicked words. Look inside of me and show me myself. I've had a practice for a long time, years and years, that on Saturdays, my time with God, and I know we get weird about being too human-focused, but on Saturdays, my time with God is... Show me me, see if there is any wicked way in me. Show me my heart, show me what's lying in the shadows, show me what's in the cobwebs, what do you wanna get out of here? And I am telling you I've been doing this a long time and still every time, every single time there's something that he shows me. Here's an insecurity that gets in the way of your relationships, here's something that gets in the way of you doing more that, that, that would make your heart come alive. Here's a pain that it's time to let go of. Here's anxiety that it's time to get healed from. We live in such a litigious society that when we experience pain, a lot of times the first response is, Who do I sue? How do how do I get back for this? And and I'm I'm not saying you can't sue to get paid back for your pain. I am saying that however much you get, it won't be enough. It it won't. And so all this time, we've got a God who sits in front of us and says, bring me your pain. Bring me your anxiety. Bring me the stuff that scares you. Bring me the stuff you can't get over. Bring me your addiction. Bring me your sin. I was built for this. And in it, we start to see the keys to the things that have us stuck. And so I'm not going to ask you to fast. That's for other speakers. But I am gonna ask you to take the space of this next song. Listen, sing along, sit, stand, kneel, whatever you want. But would you take just this space and ask God, show me myself, show me my heart, show me what's inside, and help me see your way more clearly in it. Would you help us to feel your presence in all the cells and molecules and everything around us? Where could we go from your presence? Up to heaven, down to hell, to the other side of the sea, you are there and you are here. And so we rejoice in who you are and we rejoice that you rejoice over us. It is a marvelous truth, it's too wonderful for words. So we give you praise and glory for who you are and what you do. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, will you stand with me? And if you would like to receive the final blessing, I would like to speak it over you. If you wanna put your hands out in front of you if you're comfortable. May you be men and women who understand the delight of being seen and known by the creator of your soul. And may you be people who are willing to welcome his desires, his power, his opinions, and put them in first position in your life today and always in the name of the one who sets us increasingly and emphatically free. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. We love you so much. We'll see you next weekend.